we are kind of in the beginning stages of actually entering the book of Revelation. And whenever you say that, it's kind of like so many people are like, ooh, the book of Revelation, awesome. And we are, we're excited about it with us. And part of what's going on here is we're spending a couple uh, Sundays just to set up our time in that. And we're headed to the land of Revelation, as I called it last Sunday. And we are in the process here of uh, not quite, uh, we're on a bus tour, but not quite loading up the bus here. Uh, we got the picture of our bus. Uh, yeah, I'm the tour guide, so I get to choose the bus. And this is like my dream machine. And you're like, yeah, you're in midlife crisis. Okay, maybe. Um, but that's uh, the bus we're going to be loading. I'm kind of your tour guide for this. And these are these three Sundays. We're just taking this time kind of before we get in the bus and before we head down the road into the land of Revelation. We're just taking some time to kind of have some conversations about how we approach it. Our first Sunday, two Sundays ago, uh, we just took out of Revelation chapter 1. And you have to start by seeing Jesus. And so we took that morning in chapter 1 to see the risen, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ. It's not the movie Jesus that we see in the sandals and the long hair teaching on the, uh, in, in dust and kind of the hippie dude kind of thing. Sometimes the people have their perceptions of. But this is the glorified, magnified, risen Jesus Christ as he is today. And we need to see it because that's what the whole book is ultimately about. Then last Sunday, we talked about where we are going. It's important to know where we're going even before you arrive there. I talked about how uh, uh, the land of Revelation has a founder, Revelation verse 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 is Jesus Christ. It has citizens. In other words, we talked about how the book is especially mainly written to people that are in Christ as a, as a, as a hope and encouragement to them. Everybody's uh, welcome to be part of it, but uh, those are its primary audience. It has a purpose not only to unveil Jesus Christ, but to unveil uh, imminent uh, events that are yet to come. And uh, also it has expectations. Verse 3, chapter 1, we talked of one of those. was the, It says that when you go through this, you will be blessed. We'll let God define the blessing, but it says we will be blessed. Secondly, it says that uh, we're to experience life change. We're not going on this journey just for an academic journey. We're not going on this journey just for an experiential journey. We're going on this journey to have our lives changed as a result of it. And third, this is a team thing that we do. The, basically, it's written to a team. Believers in Christ gathering together, and so we're doing it as a team. Uh, and lastly, it's a unique place. I talked about how the, the, the literary genre of Revelation, it's, it's an apocalyptic prophetic letter that's being written. And I don't think I did a great job on the apocalyptic part, so I'm just, I don't have a lot of time. I'm just going to say this today. What is apocalyptic literature? Um, it is simply this. Biblical apocalyptic literature is biblical prophecy, but in epic proportions. It's prophecy, but it's in like epic proportions. Prophecy is generally an oracle, uh, given, said, uh, but uh, apocalyptic is heavy with imagery and symbols, and it's like prophecy on steroids, and that's where we're at. And Today we're on the third prep time, and trust me, we will load into the van next Sunday and get on the tour, but today it's about how we function in the land of Revelation. Let's say it this way. How you function follows an understanding of where you are going. You need to understand where you are going. That was last Sunday. Now that we understand where we are going, some things about how to function when we get there. Knowing about the land of Revelation 
drives how then you approach and function in it. Well, we're going here, and one of the things we're going to do, Karen, if you'd come on up, uh, we're going to be, uh, we don't do this a whole lot, but we will be during the book of Revelation. We're just going to be having uh, the, the text read. So I've got my wife here read. If everybody would stand, grab your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Karen is just going to read it through. John sent this letter with the intent that it would be read aloud within the churches. And so we're going to do that here. So Karen, would you take us to Revelation 1? This is Revelation 1 from the NIV version of Scripture. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. 
The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. God, we thank you that you have given us your word. You have allowed us the opportunity to have insight into who you are and what you are doing and what you're up to. God, I would just pray as we enter into this journey, into this book of your word, that you would just awe us. You would show us who you are in an increasing way. And that we would just glory and revel in all that we see of you. More of you, Lord, we ask that we would see more of you. And we pray this in the name of the one who is talked about in this chapter. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. Well, as I said, today is kind of one of more of those prep days. Today's kind of a little bit like a classroom day. So if you're visiting with us, this is a little bit out of the norm for us here, but we're in this preparation time here, and as we enter in, we have some things that we need to address. And so today really is about how we approach it and how we function in it. First, three key concepts about how we approach this book of the Bible, how we approach, as I'm talking about, the land of Revelation in this, three things with this. Number one, uh, the Lord is the source and the subject of this book. Uh, chapter one, verse one, it tells us that the, the, the revealing of Jesus Christ, and also it's the re revelation sourced from Jesus Christ. Uh, know this this book, this is God's book, He wrote it, and that's really an important deal. God allowed this book to be written to be able to tell us about him. And because it's God's book, there's a few things that happen. Number one, we get really excited about it. I mean, listen, friends, God wrote a book. And he's the source behind this book. And it's like we get to go in and we get to take a look and we get to see God revealing information. How cool is that? I want to go to that place. That's where we're going. Secondly, along with that, I mean, we approach it with awe. Now listen, this is not Aesop's fables, Plato didn't write this, and even technically, John didn't source this. Now, John was writing this, but ultimately it's sourced from the Lord Creator God of the universe. And that's what we're diving into, and so we approach it with awe. Also, I'll just say we approach it as a result of all that, being the fact that this is God's information, we approach it with fear. Listen, I'll say it this way. Don't mess with God's words. That's the reality of it. If we are truly diving into God's words, then we need to have this awe and fear and respect that, listen, these are God's words. You don't want to hear what I have to say. I don't want to manipulate what God, I want to know what God says in this. And that's the kind of church that we are, and that's what we want to do. We want to know what God has to say with this. The Lord is a subject and source of it. Secondly, as we approach it, uh, the Lord intends us to understand it. And I bring that again to the table because Revelation, it, it, the apocalyptic uh, symbolic imagery that's there, sometimes it, it, it can just be viewed as like some crazy fantasy that no one can understand. Listen, uh, God wrote it that we would understand it. God is not on his throne going, watch this guys, I am gonna so mess with these dupes 
And like, I'm going to send them something that is so confusing that's just going to irritate the life out of them. (laughs) That's not what this is about. That's not what's going on here. God intends that we would understand it. Yes, Revelation, the book of Revelation, has lots of symbols, lots of images. And know this, we're not going to understand every one of them. But we are going to understand the big picture because God does want us to understand and know him. That is just so cool. With that, this is means that this is not the kind of thing that we can just go in and go, hey, whatever you want to believe is fine. Friends, just think about that. Spend some time today thinking about it. If that is true, that is absolutely asinine. I mean, how is it that God would put a book and then 10 people read it and 10 people stand and have 10 different ideas on what it is and God is over here like, you know what, I'm good with that. All 10 are good. And God's like, what kind of schizophrenic God is that? There's no point, there's no truth, there's no meaning in it. And yet the fact of the matter is I put this on the table is because what we're trying to do is come at this and realizing this is God's word, God's book. I want to know, we want to know what God says. And even in the times when I get uncomfortable with some of the things, it's like, listen, I am not gonna tell God what he should think and what he should do. I want to understand, though, what God thinks and what God does. And then I'll wrestle that out. But listen, we need to know what God wants to say, and that's where we're at. I want to let, let us know as I bring this up in the understanding of it, uh, this is not a theological end times debate exercise. And so often that ends up getting into that, oh, that's just so boring, and it's just so old. And I'll put it this way. Kind of debaters oftentimes love to stay in debaterville and not go to doingville. Like, let's just talk and talk and talk, and it's almost an avoidance of getting after and doing what we're told to do. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in debaterville. I want to be in doitville. It's kind of like, you know, sometimes critical people think that their criticalness is critical thinking. I just say, critical thinking is not being critical. Critical thinking is thinking with a critical, with a thinking mind. It's not griping about everything. We don't want to be that kind of church. We don't want to be that kind of people. I trust our small groups aren't that way. When we sit and we get around and we just debate issues or we're critical about what that person wrote. Like, okay, we don't agree with everything. Okay, that's fine. Let's get after what we know. Why? Because God wants us to understand him and what he has to say. So that's where we're coming at this whole thing. We are entering to see and meet the Godhead and come to understand more what God has to say about where things are going. How cool is that? He's the source and the subject of it. He writes to us to understand it. And a third note here I think is just important for us is my whole approach in this. We are doing a book of the Bible study. We do that most of the time around here. We went through the book of Colossians a while ago. We just went through uh, the gospel of Mark together. We, we go through books of the Bible. That's the general uh, operation of things. And we're doing the same things here. And it's important because there's also what is called systematic theology, where you take a look at the whole and what the Bible says about the whole. And that's fine, and that's fantastic. But I want for you to know this. If you're a theologian, if you know some of the terminology, we are not entering into a systematic theology study of eschatology. 
We're not entering into a beginning of the Bible to end of the Bible conversation of what the whole Bible has to say about what happens in the end times. Right now what we are doing is we are just camping in the book of Revelation. Why, Pastor Doug, are you doing that? There's some reasons for that, and I'll just tell you straight on the table. One of the reasons for that is because we're still a young church. And as a young church, we've never actually been, I've never on purpose had us go and dive through a book like the latter half of Daniel or Ezekiel or apocalyptic literature. We're going to dive into the first big daddy of apocalyptic literature now. And as a church, I want to help us understand how do you handle and work through this kind of literature. We're going to understand, try and understand the book of Revelation so that when we do systematic theology and we bring Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Thessalonians and the Olivet Discourse and all these kinds of things into it, we understand where revelation is coming. Okay? So we're not doing a holistic and time study. We're doing a book of revelation study. That's where I'm camping at. Okay? So when we open and you go to the book of revelation, know this. You are entering... A book that is sourced by God and the subject is God. We also enter this knowing that God wants us to understand this. That's why he wrote it. And third, I just need for everyone to know that we are going into this as a book of the Bible, not a whole systematic theology approach, okay? So that's a little bit of how we approach it, now how we function. Did I not say this was going to be like a class today? Okay? All right, uh, so now we move from approaching it to how we function in it. In other words, being that we are diving into a unique book of the Bible, an apocalyptic, prophetic letter of the Bible, how do you dive into that? How do we now function in it? There has to be some framework on how you interpret and work throughout it. So I want to help you and teach you as a church family how to be able to study in your own Bible with greater effectiveness. So what's the framework in a book like Revelation? Well, well, I want to tell you about three things here that are really important with the rest of our time here about operating within a book like Revelation. But let me just highlight again why the framework. Here's the deal. If you were to travel to London, England, London has a different framework even than Paris does. Just try going on the metro. They're both unique under that. They both have different languages. They both have unique cultures. They don't really like each other. <laughs> now, if you go from London to Paris, there's a unique genre. But then all of a sudden, if you go over to Hong Kong, there's an entirely different genre that's going on there. And then if you come over to L.A., there's a different genre there. And then even on the west side of Indianapolis, there's a different genre, a different framework, a different context of what takes place. All of those languages, cultures, even how we build our houses and the things that we do in our work schedules. They have context. They matter. Along with that, a framework. Entering a birthday party, you enter a birthday party different than you enter into a funeral. Don't you? Okay, you guys enter them the same. It's like no real, listen, we, don't we? we? We enter them differently. And then entering a birthday party is different than entering a funeral, which is also different than entering a concert, which is different than entering a small group. Understanding the framework in which you're stepping into is really, really important. By the way, if you were to step in to read Homer's Iliad from 700 B.C., 
that's a different framework than reading Hamlet in 1600. And that's different than the Pride and Prejudice ladies in the 1800s. That's different than the Grapes of Wrath or the Hobbit or the Chronicle of Narnia in the early 1900s. And by the way, take all of that and just to show you my academic level, if you were to read the screenplay of Napoleon Dynamite, (laughs) that would have a different framework to it. It does, okay? So three key frameworks, here we go. Number one, a historical, a historical framework. Friends, know this. What we are about to enter into was not written last year. It was not written last century. This was written at a different point in time. And let's understand some things about it. Number one, it's written to a guy named, or written by a guy named John. Verse one, Revelation one. It says to his servant John. Uh, verse four, it talks about John is then writing this to seven churches, and this is the Apostle John, for clarity. This is one of the 12 disciples. This is actually one who was on the inner circle, even within the 12, when Jesus was going to the transfiguration and and, and in the Garden of Gethsemane. John was one of the three that he kind of pulled in with him in in that period of time. Uh, John was also the guy that when Jesus, while he was hanging on the cross, we're told, told his mom, told Mary, that John is gonna take care of her. That gives you some interesting insight. And by the way, I wouldn't have to say anything more of that than John than this. All of that makes a difference on how you read this book. This guy in verse 17 that fell at his feet as though dead before the glorified, magnified, risen Christ, that was the same one that hung out with him for three years. And John is writing this in all of his background and and framework of it. John is also the author of the Gospel of John. He's the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. He's the apostle. He's the author. Uh, Look at verse 9 in chapter 1. This is so cool. He's a brother and partner in suffering, John. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation or in the sufferings, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. A couple of things here, just so that we get to know John. Notice what John does. He says, John, your brother in Jesus Christ. How cool is that? I mean, for my framework, looking back at redemptive history, if there are some cool guys in history, one of them is John. I mean, he got to spend years with Jesus Christ. And he was the one that Jesus entrusted his mother to. I mean, they had to be tight. And that's the guy here. And yet in it, John isn't going, John, the awesome apostle, the one that followed Jesus Christ for all these times, I, John, the one, he didn't pick the other 11 to watch his mama. He picked me. I'm the one that's writing to you. That's not what John is doing. John is doing this. He's like, John, your brother. At the foot of the cross, everyone is equal. In fact, in this day and age where we go around and sometimes you see these uh, images, I'll just call them these idols of the apostles, John would just be irritated as could be. What are you doing building an idol in my image? It's not about me. I'm your brother in Christ. Do it about Jesus. And so here, he's our brother in Christ. Also, this is really important. He's a partner in tribulation. 
He's a partner in suffering, a partner. That means that he's not alone. He's writing to these people and he's saying, I'm in Christ, you're in Christ, and you are going through tribulations. I'm going through tribulations. I'm a partner with you as a brother in Christ. So very cool. John is in a persecution struggle. The churches in Asia, in the modern-day Turkey, the seven that he's writing to, are in persecution struggles. Listen, just know this. Faithful followers of Christ experience affliction. And in fact, it is part of following Christ. Do you know that? Because in our culture, in our world, oftentimes what, what is told is that come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Come to Jesus and you will get all kinds of money in the mail. Come to Jesus and you will never experience problems again. And I'm just going to say it. It's heresy. It's not true. Hey, if you come to Christ, know this persecution's coming. Who wants to come to Christ? But, but I put this on the table because John is a partner in their suffering. And we look at scripture, and in fact, John 16, oh, that's interesting, John John 16, verse 33, John writes, in the world, you will have tribulation. Not you might, not you maybe will. No, 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 you will have tribulation. Tribulation was the lot in John's day for followers of Christ. Tribulation is the lot for followers of Christ in this day, and tribulation is in the lot for all followers of Christ until Christ returns. And I don't like to say any of that. Because you know what? I want warm, fuzzy bunnies. I do. I don't like suffering. I don't like tribulation. I don't like conflict. I hate those things. But we live in such a culture where we'll do anything to avoid problems and tribulation and suffering. In fact, we'll do it so much that we'll candy over Jesus. And we'll just take all the things that Jesus says that sound really nice and candy-coated. And then we'll just forget about the fact that Jesus says, whoever would follow me must pick up their cross and follow me daily. And we will not talk about passages like John 16. That you will faint on. If you're in Christ, suffering is part of your lot. And if the Apostle Paul were here, and he would tell his story and show his back, you would know suffering was part of his lot. And John is in exile on the island of Patmos, for being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to people about 40, 50, 60 miles away who also are experiencing suffering just because they carry the name of Jesus. And John's like, partner. Partner with you. We're making this through together. 
The apostles taught suffering. Jesus taught suffering. And they experienced it. I'm not trying to bum you out. I'm just trying to bring some reality. And John is a partner in suffering for the gospel. Verse 9, he also says he's a partner in the kingdom. Verse 6, we talked the other week, uh, we're made into a kingdom. And in Ephesians 2, Revelation 5, we'll see, we, we share in the royalty of Christ. But, but our present suffering situation, it kind of oftentimes veils over the reality of that we're in a kingdom. Hey, friends, if you are in Christ, know this. You are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, you've been raised, you've been seated, you've been positioned with him. And we just go celebrate, yeah, but then the reality is we live within a sin-cursed world at this time being and suffering comes along with it and it's hard, isn't it? And oftentimes our suffering kind of veils us from the reality of the kingdom reality that we are in. But I just want to kind of say this, pull the veil up a little bit in your suffering and know this, you are part of the kingdom of God if you are in Christ. And that's why John says also a partner in patient endurance. The word is hupomene. If we have present sufferings and yet there's a kingdom hope, what are we supposed to do? Answer, persistent endurance through it. Eyes on the kingdom, persistent endurance through the period of time. So here's the apostle John. He's in trial. He's writing to God's people that are also in trial to giving them kind of this information about, hey, here's some hopeful information about what God is up to. That's what we're diving into. He's exiled on account of the word of God. He's 95 AD time period. He's likely in his 80s at this time. Think about that. He's lived for some 60 years. And he's put out on this island of Patmos. It's a small island. It's, it's 10 miles by 6 miles. It's 40 miles southwest of Ephesus. It's a hilly, rocky, sparse, vegetated area. It's not a major inhabited thing, but it's also not like a, a, a slave island. He's not out there with a hammer breaking rocks. There's what goes on. It's just like what Great Britain did with convicts back in the day. They shipped them to Australia. That's really what happened. Why? Just get them away uh, back in the day, they didn't have, in John's time, they didn't have jails to be able to house all of their uh, people that they want to put away. Jails were only for people waiting to be trialed or waiting to be executed. And so with John or people like this, they would just go, just get away, just leave us alone. And so they send him to this island off, and John is there, he's in his 80s. That means he's been following the Lord Jesus Christ for some 60 plus years. How cool is that? And that's the guy that's writing this. And that's the setting of what's going on. That's the historical framework. Second, textual framework. A need for us to understand again, this is apocalyptic, prophetic letter. It's unique. A few things with that. Uh, Revelation has tons of Old Testament ties to it. Some say that uh, there are some 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the Gospel of Revelation. That means that about 70% of Revelation has ties into the Old Testament. That's important to be able to go there first to try and understand some things. So it has Old Testament roots. It also, it has lots of symbols and imagery as I've already talked about and we've already referenced to. But handling how do we function within those. Well, we function within this in a couple pieces of information. Number one, symbols and imagery is not fantasy. 
It's real stuff, but it's brought about in a way to visually explain and see. Much of it tied to the Old Testament. Listen, there is a real God, real angels, real John, a real Patmos, a real tribulation time going on, real churches, real events, and real truths. And sometimes people think that Revelation is just like this fantasy world. It's Star Trek or Star Wars. That's not really real, but it's kind of cool. That's not what Revelation is about. We're seeking to understand what the Lord put down. Revelation also, it's not consumed so much with the physical as it is consumed with how things are. Let me say it this way. When, Jesus, when John describes seeing the resurrected magnified Jesus at the end of the chapter, John is not so much about see his face, see his hands, see his eyes. John is not so much about now draw the picture. John is really ultimately about Jesus' identity. His description is Old Testament tied. And yes, he's describing what he's seeing, but in that he's not so much about the physicalness as he is about the identity of what he's describing here in it. Add to that, John is in an otherworldly thing that's going on. Okay, let me put it this way. Imagine that you are given the assignment to explain to people who live in the bush that have never left the bush, wherever the bush is, and have lived there and are not used to electricity and computers and lights, and you now try and explain that. Well, well, lights, it's like lightning that shoots, but it it sits there. I mean, how do you explain that? You're, You're explaining from one context to another. And what John is doing is in this, the Lord is like opening up the veil for him to be able to see kind of what is going on out there. And yet John is explaining it in world's terms. And sometimes that's a challenge. And so what John is doing here is not so much trying to describe the specific physicality, but he's trying to describe a number of things in the language as as he knew it then. Also, the textual framework, we're about seeing the big picture of symbols and images, not the minute. Listen, behind every little image item is not necessarily a massive golden nugget to be found. Sometimes in Revelation, uh, things are explained and things are the way they are just to help us to understand the whole of it and to cause us to fall into greater awe with it all. Third, textual framework contains some important terms. Some important terms. We're going to be going every so often, and I'm going to be having to stop at some terms and explain some situations. I want to give you two examples here. Look at verse 10, chapter 1. By the way, just so you know, I'm trying to equip you also on how to think through when you come across uh, issues in God's word. And there's an example here. One of them is in verse 10. uh, John says that on the Lord's day. Here's a question. What's the Lord's day? Well, you and I, we go, well, that's Sunday. But wait a second. It was not written in the year 2000. It was written in the year 95 AD. What did John mean by it? And here's one of the interesting things. The term that John has here in this structure, this is the only place in the Bible that it's used. 
Back in that day, you see in the New Testament times through Acts, that, that the normal term that was being used at that time for Sunday was the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week. Well, if it was Sunday, why didn't John use that term? He knew that term. Well, maybe John is meaning something different then. Well, you go to the Old Testament, and there's a term in the Old Testament that's called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is referring to the end times, and being that Revelation is about the end times, that it must be referring to the day of the Lord. He just kind of got the words mixed up. But wait a second. He knew the term the day of the Lord. He knew the term of the first day of the week. And so if you were to jump into commentary world, you will find that people are talking, I think it's this, I think it's this, I think it's this. And it actually can have some important meaning. And it can have some important uh, support, especially if you're a pre-tribulation rapture person. Being able to have it be a day of the Lord will help support that viewpoint. But we're not about supporting a viewpoint. We want to know what God has to say. So how do we do it? I'm just being an example here with you. I'll just tell you, I think it's referring to Sunday. And I say that because when you look at the form of the grammar, when you look at the time of the of was used and the area in which it was come from, in that area there was the term that was used, the emperor's day, the treasurer's day, all these various terms that are very common to this. And so uh, I think it's actually referring to Sunday in that. And sometimes we need to have these kind of, we wrestle with the text. And it's like, Doug, why do we have to wonder? I thought we were supposed to understand it. Uh, listen, sometimes it's really fun to wrestle in God's word and just to enjoy it and work it through together. I mean, the Lord's day is an example. A second day, is a second example is verse 16 and verse 20. It talks about that the seven stars are seven angels, and the seven angels kind of have this oversight over the seven churches. Here's one of the questions. Who are these seven angels? What are the seven angels? Well, especially in the Greek, because the Greek, the word means angelos. Angelos can actually mean a heavenly angel, but angelos is also used to have a meaning for a messenger, a human messenger uh, like you and I in it. So we have discussions and debates about which one is it there. It's understandable. Uh, those that fight for the angel side of it, they talk about how uh, the word angelos occurs 67 times in Revelation and all are clearly referring to heavenly beings. So how could it be a human being? Well, part of the problem with that is that if they're angels, there's in a couple of these churches, there's some rebuking that's going on and that includes rebuking of the sender. Well, if angels are unfallen heavenly beings, how could angels be rebuked? See the argument? Okay, so what do you do with it? Well, you step back and you ask this question. Does it really matter? Does it really matter? And actually, I think this is one of these things where it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Sometimes it's okay to say Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord and the things revealed belong to us. And right now, I'm not understanding. And I'm kind of as an example here as we get started letting you know, I'm not sure. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because it doesn't change the direction of the whole book. All right? Lastly, we go from having a historical framework 
We have a textual framework. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It is filled with symbols and imagery. Uh, there's sometimes important ter interpretive terms that need to be considered and thought through. And all are treated with great care. And then lastly, an interpretive framework. Here's what I'm talking about. When you approach this, there's a history behind it. When you approach this, also within it, there, there's a whole textual format of what goes on that it's good to be able to know as much as you can. And third, there's a way on how you just handle this. All right. There are five interpretive frameworks that are out there. Let me just tell you them quickly. Number one is called the preterist view. That is the view that Revelation is actually, was actually fully fulfilled in the first century with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. If that is the case, it completely changes how you see, read, and the meaning of the text. The, the other view is the historicist view. Revelation is this panoramic map that predicts what will happen in church history from the first century to the return of Christ. And it's kind of like as you go through the book, chapters this and this refer to that period of time of history. And then it refers to that period. So it's kind of symbolic, uh, a description on the whole. A third one is the idealist view. Revelation is simply a, a, a depiction of the timeless principles of the cosmic struggle of good and evil and that God will eventually win. It's not talking about specific it's just talking in very uh, general idealist kind of conversation. A fourth is the futurist view. It basically sees that chapters 4 to 22 talk of future events that will precede the end of redemptive history. In other words, what John is saying has not yet happened. What was future to John is also now still future to us. And then there's a fifth view. After the preterist, historicist, idealist, futurist, then fifth, there's an eclectic view. Or just pick the various things from the various ones that you like and, and are, are the strengths and weaknesses of each of those and kind of put it together. So, Doug, how are we approaching this? Well, here's what takes place. You read most any commentary, if you were to take a class about the eschatology of the end times, here's what would happen. The teacher, the author would come and he'd say, here's, there's generally five views on how to approach this book, the ones I just gave you. And then he or she would tell what their view is, and then what would happen is, is that usually the rest of the commentary or the rest of the class ends up kind of being them showing why their view is the right view. I just don't think that's the right approach at this point in time. Doug, which one of these views are you? I'm not going to tell you. Because here's why. I want for you to understand that there are different ways to see some of this. But I want us to go on the journey together. I don't want us right from the very beginning say, this is what it is, and this is what you're going to experience, and frankly, ruin the journey for you. I want to walk into this journey like it's brand new for me and brand new for you. And when we understand these foundational framework things, listen, I'm going to tell you, they really matter. They really matter. And so what we're going to do is next Sunday we're going to step into the bus and uh, Stu and, and, and my wife already have shotgun. Uh, they've already claimed it. And, and, and we're, we're going to head off and we're going to go on this journey and we're just going to let Revelation unfold and we're going to work it out together. And it's not going to be so class-like as it was today. But this is all the information you need to know as we step on the bus, head out of the terminal, 
And know this. You and I are about to meet the Lord in a way that up until this time, no one had insight into things like is revealed in Revelation. And we're going to be able to see God lifted high and magnificent. We are going to see how God takes care of situations. We are going to see that God is sovereignly in control. We are going to see and wrestle through things like, is there a hell? Is God going to judge? How can that happen? Why did God not give people the opportunity? (laughs) We're going to be wrestling through these things. And I'm looking forward to it. And we're going to do it together. Verse 19. John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. I think that's the general outline of the book. Next week, we are going to cover chapters 2 and 3 in one Sunday. Okay? Uh, We went through chapters 2 and 3 as a church uh, before we moved in, and so we're doing a summary review chapters 3 and 3 because I want to get to chapter 4 and following. All right? Hey, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time together in your word. This is kind of an unusual day of uh, uh, just setting some framework here. And I realize that this is sometimes the kind of day that for some, it's like I have no idea why we have to know this and where this is going. And God, I'm just really, really glad they're here because this is an opportunity to be able to equip the saints to be able to learn better how to dive into your word. And Father, I just pray, would you go before us? Would you help us to be able to understand what you've written? Give us the wisdom on knowing what's what, realizing that there are really good people who have some different viewpoints and thoughts on certain things, but they're not the pen issues. They're not the orthodoxy issues. Uh, Sometimes we just have to see that there are pencil things that we scratch our head and we will come to final confirmation when we see you. But Lord, we're going after the pen thing. We're going after the things that tell us about who you are and what you are doing. And we can look at it and we can see with surety that that's who you are. That's what you are doing and will do. And that's who you will be. And God, it matters. Because we do not live in a world that just happened by mistake. We live in a world that has a purpose. And it's moving somewhere. And you are central to it all. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.